from the very beginning. We have wandered. We have searched the world for meaning and a higher purpose. He is the answer. He is the way. He is the truth. And He is the life. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name. I'm really glad that you guys are here today, and as glad as I am that you're here today, I'm also very, very glad that the sun is shining today, at least for this portion of it. I was up at 3 o'clock last night in the middle of the evening or morning, whatever you want to call it, like listening to the thunder outside my window and the rain hit the ground, and all I was thinking was playground egg hunt, playground egg hunt, muddy puddles and children falling, face planting in the dirt, trying to reach for that egg, and it was just... A disaster, but as of right now, I'm thinking we're on for whatever this afternoon entails. I'm glad that you're here today. I'm also really glad to see such an even distribution of faces out in the crowd because a lot of times it's like concentrated on one area in the auditorium or another area in the auditorium, and then I'm like favoring, and then there's like two people on one side, and I can't like not look at them, but then if I look at them, then it feels like I'm only looking at them, and I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable because then they may not come back again, and then all of a sudden we're in a weird situation altogether. So for the even distribution, of the way that you disseminated yourself this morning. Thank you. My name is Nick Allen, and I get to be the campus pastor of this location of Rolling Hills. Happy Palm Sunday, pre-Happy Easter. I'm glad that you're here. We are in the middle of a series called Jesus, and that was not because our creative engines stopped flowing and we couldn't think of a, a more creative title. In fact, that's the best title that we could ever imagine naming a series. We're going to name it after the name that is above every other name. We're just going to call this series Jesus. And we've been examining like one piece of this verse all series long, like Jesus Christ saying these I am statements all combined in one sentence, John fourteen six. I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that passage of scripture starts with, like right at the beginning, like not John 14, 6, but John 14, 1. Jesus is looking at his people and he's saying, let not your heart be troubled. And I think that's a really funny way to, to say that. Like, like, don't be troubled. He says, let not your heart, like let your heart be troubled. That would be a terrible thing to say, but let not your heart be troubled. And his remedy for that, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, in Jesus. That belief is the word pistuo in Greek, and it literally means to entrust. Like I can tell you that I believe that this chair will hold me, and that's a great sentence. But until I'm actually willing to back myself up into it and put myself down, I have not illustrated said belief in the power of the chair, pastuo is to sit down. Pastuo is to trust that that, that, that thing that you're going to rest in, that thing that you're going to lean on, that, that ladder that you're going to step towards, that branch that you're going to hang from is, is actually going to hold you. A couple of weeks ago, I hung a tree swing in our front yard. And in the middle of hanging the tree swing, I also realized that I actually have to get up in the tree to do it. As I'm creeping out, like bear hugging this branch, going through my mind is, will this branch hold me? Well, if it's not going to hold me, then I probably don't want it trying to hold my children. So if I can lay full spread eagle on top of this branch, then chances are good that they're going to be fine swinging from it. But that's best duo. That's not looking at the branch and thinking, I think that branch is sturdy enough. That's actually getting on the branch. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. 
It's not just the nice thoughts that we think about the Lord. It's the illustrated belief that you're willing to step out on a limb with him and know that he's going to hold you. John 14, 6 is what we say in Latin, coram deo. It's, you know, in Latin, the way that kids learn is they have to repeat it like to their, from their teacher, like a studiante. Okay, so coram deo, say that, coram deo. And it literally, like this, this word is to put one entire life everything about you into the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the almighty glory of God. And if you look at John 14, 6, the way that we interpret that verse is kind of missing a word. Don't quote me on that because I would never tell you that the Bible is missing a word. But in our human, like Western English understanding of John 14, 6, it's kind of missing an important word that's implied in the sentence because only should be there somewhere. Like we should easily be able to read that verse and and insert that word in our understanding of it to say Jesus Christ is the only way and the only truth and the only life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That's Coram Deo. That's to submit one's entire life, entire belief system into the presence of God for the glory of God. That's a big claim to say that Jesus Christ is only And like any other big claim, it comes with a lot of really big opposition. Like, how could you say that Jesus Christ is the the only way, the only truth, the only life? Like, what about all the other ways, all the other truths, all the other forms of life? Like, why could we say that Jesus, why can't it be and not or? Because the Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Not some people come to the Father another way. But no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. It's a big claim. It comes with a lot of big opposition. If you want to talk about the big opposition, you have conversations out there on the streets and people might say, okay, so how could a good and loving God allow pain and suffering in life? Well, the passage that we address today, talking about Jesus Christ being the life, it actually gives us the answer to that. Skipping ahead in John chapter 11, where we land today, we spent the first couple of weeks of this series combing through John chapter 10. And here in John chapter 11, it's in the New Testament of your Bible. So if you go like two thirds of the way back, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the fourth of what we call the gospel accounts of people chronicling Jesus's life on earth. Baby little Jesus born, laid in a manger, grew up to be a man, called some disciples before he lived and died and was crucified on a cross and came back to life again. Like this is the books of the Bible that we're in. They're called gospels because it means good news. So in John chapter 11, verse four, this is just a precursor to where we are. Jesus heard that something bad had happened to his friend. And he says these words, this sickness will not end in death. That's good news because when we get sick, we want to know that it's not going to end in death. He says, no, it's for the glory of God. It is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So Jesus gives us an answer like sickness, pestilence, disease, disaster, war, like whatever you want to say, like the bad things that happen in life, we can sum them up under that verse right there. Like when they happen, it's not going to end in the worst of worst, although it feels that way to us because it is for God's glory so that. Son of God, who is Jesus, may be glorified through it. So that passage of scripture comes on the heels of some close friends of Jesus encountering something that's difficult. Verse 1, it says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. Oh, there's the sickness that's not going to end in death. That's good news. 
says he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And then my Bible has a parenthetical statement. It says, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. This is their backstory. First couple of verses of this chapter gives a little bit of their history so that we would know, so that the writer of these words, so that the speaker of these words can let the audience know, that's us, the reader of these words, who are these exact people that Jesus is talking about? We get some history, like from Luke chapter 7, or from John chapter 12, even one later, that this Mary, this girl, she was going to be a girl that was, hey, a little bit sinful, a little bit of ill repute, a a girl that found Jesus at a dinner with other people watching and and loved and worshipped him so much that she was willing to break an expensive bottle of perfume, pour it across his feet, and then dry them with her own hair flooded with tears. Like, this is the Mary that worshipped Jesus in that extravagant way. You want to know which Mary this is? The one who was the sister to Martha? The one who was the sister to Lazarus? It was the girl that poured perfume on Jesus. Luke chapter 10, Mary and Martha's house. Like, these, these ladies are so excited to welcome Jesus. I mean, Jesus traveling all over the area had to have some place to stay. And so he often stayed at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And so this one particular moment, John chapter 10, here they are in the house. And Martha is feverishly working in the kitchen trying to prepare something really good for Jesus. Meanwhile, Mary is just lazily sitting at his feet listening to the words. Of course, Martha comes out and complains. Hey, Jesus, BT Dub. I'm fixing you a dinner in here and my sister's doing nothing to help. Why don't you tell her to come and help me in the kitchen? And Jesus responds like, she's actually making the wiser choice. Like the time that she is spending with me is actually the wiser choice in the moment. Then we get to John chapter 11. We encounter this family again. And this time Lazarus, apparently who Jesus loved, this friendship, he was sick. So they sent word to Jesus. Why did they send word to Jesus? They sent word to Jesus because they knew that Jesus was a healer and he had a reputation for being a healer. And they had seen firsthand the fact that Jesus could do amazing things. And so they call for him to alert him, to let him know, hey, this friend of yours, we're in a tight relationship. He's sick. These people had a backstory with Jesus. And John, right at the beginning of it, wants you to know who they are, that they're in relationship with him. What's, what's your history with Jesus? What's, what's the kind of time that you've spent with him? How, how often has he come into your house? How often have you welcomed him and served him and, or, or sat at his feet and just listened to him? This is an inspiring word to ask. What's, what's my history with Jesus? What are my one, two, and three verses that would be used to describe my history, my backstory, my relationship with King of Kings, Lord of Lords, this guy, Jesus? A lot of people have different, different answers to that. Because for a lot of people, maybe even someone here, you've spent the the largest portion of your life, all of your backstory, all of your history with relationship to Jesus has basically been, it's in your notes today, ignoring him. Like just ignoring the fact that there's a big population of people right here, you know, we're in the south, the southern part of the United States, who literally believe Coram Deho, that the only way to live our lives is to submit to the complete and total authority of God in it. And the only way we fully understand that God is that he sent his son Jesus to be his representative on earth and to be the the way for us to be in relationship with him. There's people out there, I'm one of them, who Coram Deho, I want to submit every single area of my life into I want to enter into the presence of God and submit to the authority of God and whatever happens to me, even if it's sickness, even if it's like disaster, even if it's like, like bad, like, like 
financial ruin. Like whatever happens to me, I want it to be to the glory of God, Coram Deo. There's people that literally believe that and live, go to the ends of the earth for that. Do whatever the Bible says for that. There's people, Coram Deo, and you have spent your entire life looking at them and going, y'all crazy. Y'all are nuts. And somehow your history with Jesus has been to ignore the fact that there are literal claims about the truth and the validity. There's people that have just ignored whatever this word says. And some of that is just history. Some of it is just backstory. It's not animosity. It's not aggression. It's just, I don't have time for that. Some people conversely have fully embraced it and decided to completely worship it. Like, absolutely, give my life over to the Lord. Not just worship it, but I'm going to serve it. I'm going to give my life and my resources and my effort to, to proclaim this message, to love this Savior, but then also to tell other people so that they can proclaim this message and love this Savior. Some people, while they've spent time just ignoring the truth and the claims of the Bible, some people have fully embraced it and decided we're going to worship it, we're going to serve it. And some people have gone so far to say, I'm just going to flat out reject it. And not only reject it, but I'm going to do my best to make sure that other people know that they should reject it too. There's different responses. There's different histories. There are different backstories with Jesus. Maybe yours is other, and you would just want to write that in the blank and say, this is my backstory with Jesus. This is my walk with him. Maybe it's nominal. Maybe it's casual. Maybe that history that you've had with Jesus has just been, eh. I don't even know what emoji that is, but it's the one that's like, meh. Whatever it is, we, we, we have a history, we have a backstory, and it may not be as spirit-filled as Mary's, or as in a loving friendship, like as in Lazarus's, but the passage of Scripture wants us to know these are people that spent time with Jesus. So Jesus receives this word, and says in John chapter 11, verse 4, when he heard this, He just proclaimed to his disciples, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. It's not going to end badly. But he didn't say in that moment, oh, he's going to heal, don't worry. Oh, he's going to recover, don't worry. He said something even better, God's going to get glory from it. You know, Christians, and and I'll label us together, like if you're Coram Deho and you love Jesus and you want everybody else to know Jesus and you've submitted your whole life under the authority of God, you lose your ever-living mind anytime a celebrity thanks God when they win an award, right? We're so excited. We're like, oh, yes, that's right, Chris Pratt, he loves Jesus. Oh, yes, that's right, Mike Fisher telling good things about God, leading Bible study and praying with other people. We are so excited. I get, however, cautious. And I lean in every time the, the celebrity or the spokesperson or the president wants to jump in and say, oh, yeah, something great about God, because what I really want to hear is Jesus. Because it's one thing to stand up in front of whatever crowd you're in or whatever water cooler you're at or whatever email chain or Facebook post or whatever public profile you have. It's, it's one thing to claim somehow the goodness of God. It's another thing to dive in and to proclaim that that goodness only comes through his son, Jesus. I like it better when those celebrities, when they they make it more clear, it's not just God in general, it's Jesus specific. You see, real glory to God, real quorum deo to God, real submission to biblical authority in life doesn't just emphasize God. It emphasizes Jesus Christ as his son and our savior. The most recent survey said that 80% of people in America believe in God. The problem with that statement is 
which God? Which God do they believe in? And so we're looking at a verse in scripture that says we're not just giving glory to God the Father. We're being so specific to tell you which God we're giving glory to. Oh, it's the one who gave us his son, Jesus. So Lazarus is sick. If you summarize the next part of that passage, Jesus stayed put. Proving yet again that Jesus' timetable is not my timetable. You know, I have a schedule that I like for the Lord to keep. You know how often he keeps it? Almost never. He's not, not on my time frame. Not on my timeline. Lazarus is sick, but Jesus stayed put. And the disciples begin to have questions because they don't know if they should head back to Judea. They don't know if they should turn their eyes towards Jerusalem in this moment. They don't know if they should travel through those towns because the last time they were there, the people tried to kill Jesus. And so this debate ensues. And then Jesus finally tells them in verse 14, y'all listen up. He's telling them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And that word plainly is a good one for us to know. In the Greek, it's the word parasea. It comes from two words, pas, and that means all, and rhea, that means to put forth or to flow. It's literally to speak unreservedly. So we got pas, all, and rhea, to put forth. That comes up in another word that we know that we just take the Greek and we borrow, and it's a word that you probably said this winter if you encountered, like some people in my family, um, the 24-hour stomach bug. If this was a youth group, I'd just tell you what word it is, but because I'm uncomfortable, it's a little weird, and the lights are too bright, like I can actually see your face. If this was a dark room and I was speaking at like a conference, I'd probably just say it, but you know that word that I'm talking about. It's to put forth everything you've got. And we often say that there are people that they have that, Rhea, of the mouth because they're willing just to speak so unreservably and just to throw out everything that they got in whatever conversation. Jesus is doing that in this moment. He's putting it all out there on the line, saying it completely plainly. This guy is dead. You know somebody like that who just straight up says, Lazarus is dead. Didn't sugarcoat it. Didn't put it in a fancy package. Didn't pat anybody on the back when he said it. The guy's gone. And he takes it further. And for your sake... I'm glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. Verse 15, and for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there. Lazarus is dead and I'm glad I wasn't there. There could not be a harsher statement in this chapter. But it's for your sake. So that you can pastuo. So that you're willing to sit in the chair. So that you're willing to climb up on the stool. So that you're willing to go out on the limb and live your life under the complete and total authority of God. I'm glad that I wasn't there. Jesus, he just spelled it all out there for him. You know, there can't be a bigger problem for us than death. So it wasn't like Lazarus lost all his money. Oh, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Oh, Lazarus' family got really sick. Oh, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Oh, Lazarus um, wrecked his car and flunked out of school and his parents are going to kill him. Oh, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Oh, Lazarus and the town that they live in, it was ransacked by marauders and they were taken away as slaves. Oh, for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there. There's not a bigger problem that could be described in this moment. The guy died. And it gives us a little alert and it's in your notes this morning that there is no problem too big. Here's the greatest one they can imagine. There is no problem too great 
for Christ to solve. It says in, in verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus finally got there. It says Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That's a unique piece of information that the Bible gives us. And the reason the Bible gives us is because like Messianic Jews at this point, they believe that the soul of the human being who died would hover around their body for up to three days, hoping to be reunited. And people would come from all over the community, like, like all the Jews would gather around and they would put on sackcloth and ashes, like they'd wear their black mourning clothes and they would come and they would literally sit with the family and they're sitting shiva and just offering this sense of peace and solidarity. But a lot of those people would have also been praying for the soul of the dead to be reunited with his body. And because the dead person could no longer offer their prayers, because the dead person could no longer bring their pigeon to sacrifice at the temple, they were bringing that worship on their behalf. And so for this Lazarus to have been in the tomb for four days, hope was gone. He wasn't coming back. We're no longer praying for him. Like it's literally over. The nail is fully on the coffin. This guy's gone. So Jesus waited to time it out. Because if he had called him back from the grave one day later or two days later or even three days later, some of those same Jews would have been able to go to the corner and said, yes, we knew that souls hovered around their bodies for three days and the soul just wanted so badly to be reunited with the body and Jesus wouldn't have gotten full credit and Jesus is always about full credit. So he waited that extra day. Here we go. Four days later, people are mourning and they're guarding the body and a lot of people were there and you skip down to verse 20 and it says when Martha, you know, she's the busy girl, the one who works real hard, the one who organizes the family. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Y'all ever done that to Jesus? Told him what he should have done told him where he should have been, told him the way that he should have provided, told him the way that he should have showed up, told him the way that he should have responded. I've, I've gone to Jesus with my should-haves. Oh, not just the, I should have done that differently, Lord. I should have spoken softer. I should have re reacted slower. I should have prayed longer. I've gone to Jesus with the you should have. You should have come through for me in that way. You should have answered my prayer in that way. You should have been with me in that way. Mary walks to Martha walks to Jesus and she says, if you had been here like you should have been, you're only two miles away, like, like you should have been, like you should have got here. If you'd have come, if you'd have come when I called you, my brother, would not have died, but she follows it up. But, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's hoping he'll return that soul on this day. And Jesus said to her, I am the, res the resurrection that you're waiting for on the last day is standing right in front of you. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they may die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe that? She replied, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the 
Messiah. That means Savior. That means she was telling him that you are the one that the Old Testament prophets and ancestors told us would get here. I believe you're him, the son of God who is to come into the world. The one that we've been waiting on. I believe you're it. She was confessing her belief in the afterlife, but was still a little bit fuzzy on the current life. And what Jesus was about to show her is that he is both life eternal and life today. See, afterlife is an insurance policy for what happens to us when we die in the future. But abundant life is something that Jesus offers us in the present. And abundant life always leads to really good stories to tell about how Jesus shows up on his timeline and does more than we can ask or imagine in ours. Skip down to verse 32 in John chapter 11. It says this, when, when Mary, so Martha, she hears these words from Jesus, she sends word to her sister. Mary comes running, and if you go back of her, she realized that a lot of the other people see Mary leave, and they decide to go with her. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she did what she does. She fell at his feet. She fell at his feet, and said, Lord, same words, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had come on my timeline, Lord, if you'd have come when we called you, Lord, if you'd have done what you should have done, my brother would not have died. And then she was weeping, she's crying. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Same Jesus who had looked out at his disciples and said, let your heart not be troubled, is now troubled himself. The remedy for let not your heart be troubled, belief. And so when Jesus is troubled, he's going to give us something to believe in. And then he asked, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then verse 35, the shortest verse in all of scripture that we always claim. And I used to go to camp, like Christian camp with my youth group when I was a kid. And we'd always go to this place on the coast of North Carolina. And they gave me this name badge. It was huge and atrocious. You had to wear it around your neck. I don't wear necklaces because I think I have a sensory issue. I don't like things to touch the back of my neck like that. And like collared shirts are even a struggle sometimes. And so I hated wearing those lanyards so badly. And I would often, like teenage boys do, lose mine. And so you would show up at the cafeteria and the person in the navy blue uniform shirt would literally be clicking the kids to come in and it was literally a compound. I don't know why they had to check. Each kid that was there belonged there, but they were making sure that each kid who was there actually belonged there and was going to be allowed to come inside that room and get their corn dog. And if you didn't have your name tag, you had two options. You could sing a song or say a Bible verse. The song had to be of their choosing, and I was not about to stand there in front of all my friends and turn on my little teapot. That would have been embarrassing. So I would say, John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. It's a Bible verse, and I knew it. So they would let me in. I'd go through. I'd get my corn dog and my sweet tea and, you know, all those other things that we drank on the coast of North Carolina because we were excited about going to camp. Jesus wept. And I remember thinking to myself, man, Jesus cried. It's pretty, it's a pretty not manly thing to do. And you know, I have a single response to crying. And I'm learning, uh, being a, a dad of two daughters and a husband of one wife, that I need to temper that a little bit. Because my single response to crying, like if I, I, if I encounter you and you're crying, my first sentence is going to be, what's wrong? 
Because my assumption is that if a person is crying, like I don't think I have tear ducts because I never do that. If someone is crying, something must be wrong. 100% of the time, if I see you with tears streaming down your face, or I see you like hovering up in the corner in the fetal position, like hovering like this, and uh, like I'm going to say, what's wrong? I'm learning that that's not always the case. I have this daughter who's 12 years old. She's sitting in this room somewhere, and I remember when she was very, very young, like at a really young age, she's always been very in touch with her emotions. And so I remember her crying at one point, and I said what I always say in those moments, Lily Kate, what's wrong? Her response to me, five years old, looks at me and she says, no, daddy, these are the tears that come out when I'm happy, as if there are somehow different tears. I'm not convinced. I'm certainly sure that Jesus was not weak. But I'm also not convinced that he cried because he was sad. Or that he cried in this moment because... What we think was wrong was what he saw is wrong. What if Jesus didn't weep because he saw the place where his dead friend lay? What if Jesus wept because he saw the place? Because he knew the place where his alive friend would leave. What if it was happy tears because he knew the place that we would have a chance to leave if we believed in him. And because he also knew the place that we would have with him if we believed in him. These very well could have been the the, the happy tears of Jesus. Knowing what the people all surrounding Mary didn't know in the moment, something good was about to happen. So the Jews around them responded. They said, see how he Loved him. And that's a really good verse. Because at the beginning of the passage in chapter 3, Mary and Martha, they send, they send word to Jesus and they say, the, the one you love is sick. You know, in terms of my history with Jesus, my backstory with Jesus, I'm all the time trying to prove my love for him. And so to me, if that had been my moment, I would have wanted my wife, my kids, my friends like you to to pray and to send word to Jesus. Jesus, Nick Allen, the one who loves you so much is sick. Assuming that God would respond in a favorable way and do a good thing for me because I love him so much and I serve him so much and I desire him so much that I have somehow exhibited enough effort and enough affection for Jesus in my life that he can now respond in a favorable way that's based on my works, not his love. And so I love that at the beginning of this passage of scripture, when Mary and Martha send word to Jesus about Lazarus, they don't say, Lazarus, our brother who is such a good person. Lazarus, our brother who loves you so much. Lazarus, our brother who serves you so much. Lazarus, our brother who coram deho. We don't even know Latin yet, but Lazarus, our brother who is always in your presence and always submits to your authority. And he's the one who told us that you were the Messiah in the first place. That guy is sick. We want you to respond based on how good he is. They didn't ask Jesus to respond to how good their brother was. They asked Jesus to respond based on how good he was. And even the Jews who didn't know what was about to happen in that moment when they saw Jesus' tears, whether they were happy or sad tears, we don't know. But what they saw and interpreted in that moment was Jesus loves Lazarus. It wasn't how could you let this happen to such a good person? 
How could you linger for all those extra days and allow this to befall? Why would you let something so bad as death, the worst thing ever, happen to someone so good as Lazarus? It was never about how good Lazarus was. It was always about how much Jesus loved. Sometimes people cannot get, you, you may have been one of these people, I've been one of these people, we cannot get on board with the fact that Jesus does not always prevent the pain. But instead leverages it. He allows it and he leverages it for a far greater good. A far greater good. So Jesus is deeply moved. He comes to the tomb. He says, move the stone away. Martha has a panic attack because she knows that it's been over four days and the body probably stinks. And Jesus says, woman, didn't I tell you? Girl, I told you so. If you would just believe, you're going to see the glory. It won't. Listen, you will not be caring what you're smelling when you're seeing what I'm about to show you. When we see what God really wants to show us, we care far less about how bad the world around us stinks. If our eyes are fixed on the glory that God wants to show us, we are less concerned with whatever the stench is around us. Understanding what God is doing is proportionate to believing in the Son that He sent. Jesus prayed this prayer. It's in verse 41. They took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And then he says, I know you always hear me, but I'm actually saying this right now so that they can hear me. Like, this is for their benefit. I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. It's like Jesus praying out loud on purpose. Father, thank you for hearing me. Shh, y'all listen. I know you always hear me, God, but I'm saying this so that they can hear me tell you that I always believe in you. Saying to everybody that's gathered around that day, friends, I'm the one that he sent. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the life that you've been longing for. And when he said this, he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus. It's like, like, like the dead body can't hear a soft whisper, Lazarus. Like he's going to call out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And, and that's what happened. I think that being made alive finding the way, discovering the truth, inheriting the life that God wants to give us, always starts with God calling out your name. And sometimes when God calls out people's names, they ignore him. And sometimes when God calls out people's names, they reject him. And sometimes when God calls out people's names, they, they worship him and they quorum deo him, submit to everything he is in life. In John eleven forty five, it says, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary... They believed in him. Some of them tattled on him and went to the Pharisees and, and they went to the meeting of the Sanhedrin and there was this whole big uproar. And then guy stands up in the Sanhedrin and he says, here is this man performing many signs. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, there's no stopping him. Everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. 
So when we come to passages of scripture like this, the big, the big overarching question for this is, what is your determination about Jesus? There's only two options, and they're right here for you. One is to see what he's doing and believe in him. And not just believe in him with your words, but believe in him with your tree-hugging actions to go out on the limb because you know that he is going to hold you up. It's an all-out submissive belief in the words and the authority and the power of Jesus. Some of those people believed in him and it led to life. Or is it fear and control? Because you know that believing in Jesus is going to require you to give up something. For, for half the crowd, believing in Jesus was going to require them to give up something. So this morning, what do you have to lose? And do you perceive it to be more than everything that you have to gain if you'll just believe? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. And if you believe in God, the real God, you're going to believe in the one that he sent, Jesus. And if you believe in the one that he sent, Jesus, you're going to know the way. You're going to receive the truth. And you're going to live the life right now and for all eternity, quorum Deo. And that the presence of God now and the presence of God for all eternity. Under the authority of God now, under the authority of God for all eternity. To the glory of God, no matter what happens to you now and for all eternity. On the evening that Jesus was arrested, his disciples got a full dose of where that belief in him was going to take them. Because he explained to them over dinner, a holiday dinner, a Passover dinner, all about the book of Exodus dinner when their people left Egypt free at last. He took bread and wine that were customary at a holiday and he said, this is a, this is a new thing. Because my body is going to be broken for you and my blood is going to be shed for you. And it's only through belief in that death and ultimately that resurrection, that new life, that we can receive life. And so as a response today, we, we come to these elements. There are four corners of the room and men and women are going to serve you in the manner that Jesus served his disciples that night. You'll, you'll take a piece of the bread, which by the way is gluten-free at all stations today, and you'll, you'll dip it in the cup. And as you do, you'll, you'll hear these words. This is Christ's body broken for you. If they knew your name, they'd say it. Rachel, this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. Will, this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. They might as well be saying, Lazarus, come out. You don't have to be dead. You can be alive. But only one way. Through believing in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're ignoring or rejecting or, or, or still on the fence about whatever, you know, come and take these elements. It's, it's really just a bad snack. It's not going to do anything for you. But for, her, for those who've sat in the chair, stood on the stool, climbed out on the limb and hugged the tree, knowing that it's going to sustain them, this tiny little cracker and this tiny dip of juice represents what we believe has given us life. And we now get to live our lives only because of that, only through that. And so we proclaim it. 
Jesus, you died for us so that we could go to the Father. No man or woman gets there or has that except through you. So Jesus Christ is the way. Jesus Christ is the truth. Jesus Christ is the life. And we believe that he died and raised from the dead so that we could have that kind of life in him. I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over us and then I invite you to come to whatever station is closest. If you're a person who prefers to remain in your seat but would like to take the elements, just slip up your hand and one of our um, leaders in the back will actually bring it to you and to serve you. But we come to take these as an illustration of our belief, not in them, but ultimately in him. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. To your glory that we live. To your word that we submit. And to your salvation that we are made free. And we declare our belief in you. Not because we're good. Not because we worship. Not because we serve. Not because we love but because you do and you love us well. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.